1 Timothy chapter 5. So we've been studying through the book. Quick recap. We've looked at kind of the theme of this book is that the church is a fortress of the truth. So Timothy's job as a pastor is to protect that truth, to protect the church's doctrine and devotion to the Lord. So the church's job is to function intentionally to accomplish this task. And it does so in part by having these two offices. You have elder or overseer, pastor, same thing, and deacon. And there's a warning and an encouragement. If you stand for truth poorly, then these things will happen. But if you do well in standing for truth, then these things will happen. So for all of these reasons, Timothy is to be devoted to the public reading, exhortation, and teaching of the scriptures. That's his top priority. He is to be all about God's word and using it to shepherd God's people. Well, now, as we move into chapter 5, we're going to enter into Paul's instructions for the whole church in general. He starts to move past just these office-specific roles, and now he's giving general instruction to the church on how they ought to interact with one another and, uh, and uh, just in general. There's been a lot of emphasis on these specifics, and now it's just general instruction. So I'm going to go ahead and read this whole passage. We are going to make it through 16 verses tonight. And you may think, Garrett, what in the world? You've been doing like two at a time. A little bit different tonight. You'll see why. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 16, and then we'll walk back through and start to look at some of these things. Here's what uh, God's Word says. <clears throat> Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows." So I think you see now why we're tackling this whole section is it's all about widows. He goes into a lot of detail on this. It was really interesting to me reading through how much time he spent on how to treat this topic. I think that says something. So let's go back to verse 1. It says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. This first verse could be interpreted as Paul telling Timothy, Hey, Timothy, as a pastor... Do not rebuke an older man. This is how you ought to act. 
I think we should not view this this way, and this should be viewed as the church. The church collectively will rebuke sometimes. They will approach someone and say, we see something in Scripture, but we see something else in you that we think needs to be addressed. I think sometimes the church errs when we think that every slight moment of error is worthy of public rebuke like that, and that's just not the case. Matthew 18 is a good reference for you if you want to know, well, when does the whole church get involved? When should it just be one person? Matthew 18 gives a good model of church discipline on that and how to approach a a brother or sister that's caught in sin. So um, I think we should view this as Paul telling Timothy how the whole church should act. What are all believers supposed to do? It's less about what we do and don't do and more about how we go about doing it. When it says do not rebuke and you stop here, you may think, okay, well, it's do not rebuke. That's that's pretty simple. But if you keep reading, it says do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him. So it's not just don't rebuke. It's don't rebuke an older man. But I don't think this means never correct old men. Old men need correction a lot, just like young men. Women, not so much. They're excellent. Okay, But husbands... You know what I'm talking about? We need to be corrected a lot. So I don't think it's don't rebuke an older man. I think it means that it matters how we rebuke. If you keep looking, it says don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. So don't rebuke, but encourage. Rebuke kind of carries a negative connotation. You hear rebuke and you think, man, that's like a sharp instruction. Like a commanding that you've done something wrong and you must do something right. But when you hear the word encourage, that's much nicer. I want to encourage. Again, talking about husbands and wives. Wives are really good at encouraging us to do certain things instead of just this hard and fast rebuke. And it's helpful. So in the same way, I think that's how we need to think about this word encourage. It implies gentle instruction. And if you keep reading, I think the rest of the sentence supports this. It says, encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Sons and daughters don't or shouldn't rebuke their parents when they err. You have to be sensitive about how you instruct your parents. They're not going to listen to you. Some of you may have experience where your parents are very old, and you know that what would be best for them is to have a certain type of medical care, but they are determined that you were wrong. They don't need this medical care, and you want to just like scream and say, would you just listen to me, please? But you know it's not going to do any good, and it's the same thing even with, with younger adults and looking at their parents or even with children. Sometimes Kristen will get in this thing where I've said something incorrect. Sometimes I don't know it. Sometimes I do know it, but I'm too prideful to admit it. And she will call me to the carpet and she'll say, well, yesterday you said, you know, whatever it was. You're right, but the way you said that is not right, okay? So I'm still right, right? We want to take up the defense of that. It would be much easier on me if she had said, hey, Dad, um, you know, yesterday, you know, this happened and, and you said this, you know. It would still hurt my pride a little bit, but that encouragement helps. So it's not so much the don't rebuke. It's how are you doing the rebuking? It should be the same way that you address your parents. 
Instead of demanding them to do something, you should encourage them to do something. Notice the goal is still the same here. It's that an action needs to take place, but it matters how we go about getting it done. And it's the same thing in church. It's not good enough just to get your way on something. It matters how you go about getting it done. Think about a marriage relationship. You're talking with your spouse, and you believe something needs to happen. They believe the opposite needs to happen. And you get through the conversation, and it blows up, and you just get the right phrase in there to get it your way. And you win, technically, the argument. But then your wife walks away mad, and you think, I've won this argument, but I've lost this argument. (laughs) I have made a huge mistake. Sometimes it's about a lot more than just getting the right thing done, and it's really more how you go about getting it done. And that's kind of the instruction here. So the method is that we should show respect for the older generation. We need to be careful how we talk to them. This is an Old Testament principle as well, Leviticus 19.32. This is in the Old Testament law. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. The seniors of a society are worthy of honor and respect simply because of their age. And it's not like this increasingly in some places here in our culture, in our country, in some other countries around the world. But there are other countries where they still show tremendous honor to people who are older because it's a sign of respect and honor for their age. There's a lot we can unpack here. But for the sake of time, what's important is that we take care how we rebuke older men. We shouldn't just rebuke. We should encourage him as we would a father. So then it keeps going. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Basically, when we look at this, we shouldn't interpret this again as never rebuke anybody or else we wouldn't rebuke anyone. We should interpret it as be careful how you instruct in the church. The whole point of this is that we should treat each other like family. We're a family. If you've been memorizing the book of Ephesians and you've made it this far, Ephesians 2.19 says that you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So we are a family, a part of the household of God. When you read through the New Testament, brothers is one of the most common terms that you see to refer to one another. And even Jesus in Matthew 12.50 says, whoever does the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother. We are a family. And so if we believe that we are family, we should treat each other like family. That's really the whole point of what he's getting at here. We can take this beyond just rebuking, correcting, and encouraging. Everything that we do towards one another should be what we would do for our family members. If you wouldn't speak to your family that way, don't speak to each other that way. If you wouldn't treat your family that way, don't treat each other that way. We're family. Someone here would undoubtedly come back and say, well, that's how we talk in my household. Like, that's how our family handles it, and that's what we're used to. And I would say that Philippians 2 tells us to seek the benefit of others. Your family may appreciate the sarcasm, but not everyone will. So if you're going to err on one side or the other, let's err on the side of grace and saying, I want to be sure that I don't offend my brother or sister in how I talk with them and treat them. I will give you an excellent opportunity to perfect that and to practice that next week at business meeting. Because one thing that I've heard, and if I'm just being honest, church, 
is that business meetings here in the past have gotten out of hand. We can't have that. Why? Because we're a family. If that's how we're going to talk as a family, we will practice what I practice at my house. Everyone calm down. Let's take a break and we'll come back to this when we're all cool. And we walk away and we'll come back the next time. And we'll come back the next time. We are giving a witness to the world by the way that we conduct ourselves. And when we handle ourselves that way, what we're saying is, I'm here because I feel like I need to be here, but I hate everyone here. And that is not the gospel. The gospel is we are all united in Christ and we are one body. So we ought to treat each other like family with respect and honor. So uh, what next? So now we go to verse 3 and we start this topic of, of widows. It says in verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. Short verse. And I'm going to propose to you that verses 4 through 16 is basically Paul preaching on this verse. This whole passage is an exposition of this verse. There's an action, honor. There's a recipient of that action, widows. And then there's a qualifier, those who are truly widows. And then Paul spends a significant amount of time unpacking those three elements. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to be skipping back and forth in these paragraphs. So keep your copy open and I'll reference the verses you can look at. But we're going to look at what he says on all three of these things. Number one, what does Paul mean by honor? If you look in verse four here, it says, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return. This is something that's to be given to them as a return. This person raised those kids, so their kids are returning to their parents because of what they've done for them. If you look down in verse 8, it says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives. If you look all the way down at verse 16, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. So the provision here, this honoring, is a provision to meet the needs of widows when they're in need. It's to care for them by supplying what they need to continue to survive in a healthy way. That's what it is. That's what this idea of honoring is in this passage. Combining all of these, we can say that Paul wants us, what he wants us to do, is to honor the widows among us by providing for them. If you'll notice, you can look through this passage, he doesn't give us a list of what to provide. He doesn't say provide for the widows by you know, getting food for them. Taking care of their clothing needs. Making sure they have lodging. He doesn't give all of that. And I'm really kind of glad he doesn't give us a list. Because if I'm being honest, my flesh, when I see a list, I think, okay, good. That's all I have to do to be able to fulfill the command. But he doesn't give that to us. So we don't have that easy out to be able to say, okay, I'll just handle the list, do the checks, and that's it. What this means is that we need to be on the lookout for the widows in our congregation and to what their needs are. We don't have a list of things to look at and say, okay, check, check, check. We need to be looking deeper into someone's life than just on the surface level. There was a lady at a previous church, a sweet, sweet lady, misunderstood, I think, a little bit, really sweet. And we took students and went to her house and cleaned up the brush in her front yard because her husband had passed away. I think she had a son 
who was not a believer, um, and he didn't really come over and, and do that kind of stuff a lot for. I think there was a physical thing there that kept him from doing that, to be fair. Um, but we went and cleaned up her brush. And every time we were over there, initially you look at the brush in front of the house and you think, okay, I wonder if anyone's still living here. It was so grown up. And so that's the easy need that we saw on the surface. And so we planned a mission opportunity weekend for Christmas. We said for Christmas this year, we're going to go away for a weekend and spend the night in um, houses in our area, kind of like D-Now, and then go out and serve people. We called it S-Now, Snow, Serve Now. And so we would go out and serve, and we got there, and we're out there cutting brush, and several students went inside and just sat with her and, like, drank their sodas and just talked with her. And she just sat there and just talked, 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 talked. She had no one that would go over and just talk with her. So they found out a whole lot about this woman. They told me afterwards basically her life story. Well, guess what she did next, brother? And then guess what her husband did? And then look what happened with this. And she came back to me later and she said, y'all please come out anytime you want. That was so nice. I don't think she really cared about the brush. The personal interaction is what really – and you guess what? We would have never known that if we hadn't been there and just listened. And it's the same way with our widows. Sometimes we have to look closer than just the surface level to see what their needs are. And it, I think it goes beyond widows too, but that's specifically the context here that we're looking at. So this is an action that the whole church should take. But it also requires an effort on behalf of the widows. It's a partnership. If you look at verse 9, it starts out by saying, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not, and it gives a list there. So this word enrolled is really helpful. It means that the church is on the lookout for how to serve widows, but the church needs help in seeing their needs. And who does the help come from? It comes from the widows. They approach the church to be enrolled for care. They say, hey, I'm in need. I have these needs that need to be met. I'm running low on food, and the check that I get every month is gone because of this, and I need some help. Whatever it is, let a widow be enrolled. And you know what this sounds like? A family. This is what family does. When your parents need something. First thing they're going to do is call you. Hey, I really need this. They, they go out looking for help. If my parents didn't reach out to me sometimes, there would be needs that they have that I wouldn't know about because I don't live near them anymore. I don't regularly call every day. Maybe I should, but I don't regularly call every day. And sometimes they need to reach out or I need to reach out to them. They don't know my needs. And I reach out and say, hey, mom and dad, this has come up. Can you help us? Some of you, your kids are very comfortable reaching out. They reach out all the time. Hey, mom and dad, I love you. I need something. You have to reach out. And that's what the widows are commanded to do here. There's a lady that lived down the street from where we were staying at Rodney's. And uh, she's alone. And I was out mowing one day, and she pulled up her truck and stopped and said, Excuse me, you know, I just live right here. Could you come? And I have some groceries in the car, and it's hard for me to carry them up and down the steps. So could you just come to my house? And I said, okay. So I went down there and took her groceries and got to talking with her. And she has, um, I think, a son and a daughter maybe. Uh, one of them doesn't live close by. The other one also has some physical limitations. And so I said, look, if you ever need help with this again, I'm off every Friday. I will, if you want to do all your shopping on Friday, I'll come every Friday and do this for you. It'd be great. Well, when I got to talking with her, I learned, and she's called me several times since then. And every time I talk with her, she tells me, yeah, you know, I called so-and-so first. And then they weren't in. I called so-and-so first, and they weren't in. And so, so then I called you. 
I think she almost feels bad for it, but I'm glad that she does. Well, it's interesting. Every single time that we talk, you know who she calls first? Her kids. Even when she knows that they probably won't be able to help with something. That's just naturally what we do. If she hadn't reached out, we wouldn't know what that need is. And it's the same thing here that we see in this passage. That's what you do. You reach out to your family. And one of the problems that we face as a church when our unity is threatened is this idea that we shouldn't reach out for help when we need it. I've heard a lot of justification for this. Some people say, well, other people are in more need than me. Okay, well, that's always going to be true. If we all thought that, we'll have one person reach out because there's only one greatest need, right? That's an excuse I've heard. Well, you know, I just I didn't want a bunch of people approaching me and telling me that you know, they were thinking about me and praying for me. I can get to a degree, but that's the purpose of the church. In James, it says, is any among you sick? Call for the elders of the church. Let them pray for you. We, we are to let each other know when we have needs, and sometimes we just don't do that. We don't reach out and say, like Miss Tommy did, hey, having surgery, they're crushing some kidney stones. I would love some prayer. Those are the kind of things we need to do is to reach out to one another as a church. We need to treat each other like a family. And I think that ultimately the reason we don't do this is because we don't think of each other as a family. Which goes back to what I said on Sunday. Ideas have consequences. When you don't think of your church as a family, the consequence is you won't treat them as a family. But the flip side, if you think of your church as a family, you'll start to treat them that way. So we honor widows by providing for their needs as we observe them and as the widows make them known. That's the honor. So now widows. What is a widow? This is pretty straightforward. It's a woman who has lost her husband, who was the primary provider. The further back you go back in history, the bigger of an issue this was because women didn't have the same rights as men did. Okay, Not the ability to own property and do all these things. If you didn't have your husband there to speak for you, you didn't get a voice in things. And, and a lot of times the husband would die, and so the woman who is a widow is just on the street just hoping to survive. And so this is especially important then whenever a, a woman lost her husband. She lost her, her support system and her primary provider. They were truly extremely dependent upon their husbands in those times. So the real question here and the bulk of this passage is really on who is truly a widow. So that's the last one here, and we'll spend the rest of our time here. What does it mean to be truly a true widow? We are to care and provide for the needs of those who are truly widows. How does Paul define this? Number one, a true widow, according to what Paul says here, is someone who has no remaining family who can provide for their needs. Look at verse four. If a widow has children or grandchildren... Let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. Look at verse 5. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Why does Paul say not to help these widows? Because it is pleasing in the sight of God for relatives to learn to provide for their own relatives. It pleases God to see that happen. You see that in verse 4, and you see that a little bit in verse 8. It says in verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, 
He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So abandoning your family is equivalent to abandoning your faith. And it's not just the widows in your family. It is any relative in your family who is in need. It's the same thing when you see a husband and wife who have been married for years and years. And one of them is suddenly bedridden. The wife is bedridden and the husband stays by her bedside and takes care of her for years. We look at that commitment and we honor that. And we say, brother, you have done what you have committed to do. Same thing when it's the other way around and a wife has to take care of her husband for years and years. We honor that commitment. So when there's no remaining family who can provide for their needs, that's when you are truly a widow. And it's when a woman is in this position that the church steps in to take care of her. Why? Because she can't place her hope in her children. It says right here in verse 5, she's left all alone and has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Someone who still has children can place their hope in their children to take care of their needs. But if you don't have any relatives, you have no hope. All you have is, God, I really hope you provide what I need. And God's divine plan is for the church to answer the prayers of widows in need. God uses us to answer the prayers of other people in our church. And I've seen that in my life where I pray and I say, God... I do not know how I'm going to make this rent this month. I really need some help, and I don't know what to do, and I'm begging you, would you please do this? Guess how God typically answered that prayer? Someone in the church. And sometimes that person didn't even know that I had a need. They provided something because the Lord led them to do it, and they had no idea that I had that need, but God used the church to answer that prayer. And it's the same with us. God desires to use us to answer those prayers, especially for these widows that are in need. So what if someone has relatives, but they aren't providing for her? That happens. Someone has relatives, technically, but they're not providing for her. Well, what should we do then? Here's what I would say. If these relatives are believers, the church should approach them and rebuke them in the Lord because they are denying the faith. You approach them and say, hey, your mom is all alone and she's in need and she's contacting us. Why aren't you providing this? Well, why aren't you stepping in here? And if they're a believer, hopefully they'll accept that. and They'll say, you know, I haven't made time. I've, I've, I've been busy with this, this, and this. I'm going to get better. I'm going to work on that. And if they don't, they are denying the faith. This is one of those issues that we look at in Scripture and we say, okay, this is worthy of church discipline. Why? It says they are worse than a non-believer if they do that. So if the relatives are believers, the church should approach them and rebuke them. And then if they do not, if they still will not take care of the widow, the church should step in and take care of her at that point. If the relatives are not believers, I think the church should just go ahead and step in and do what needs to be done. And I think that we'd be following this passage. Notice here this theme. It keeps popping up. The church is her family. We are her relatives. And when her other blood relatives aren't able to step in, who steps in? We do. That's our sister. 
We will take care of her. Or that's our mother. We'll take care of her. Just because you don't have blood relatives doesn't mean you have no relatives. We're still a family. So a true widow has no other believing blood relatives who can care for her. She needs to be taken care of by the church. Number two, how does Paul define a genuine widow, someone who's truly a widow? She's advanced in age. Look at verse 9 here. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. If you scroll down to verse 11 there, it says refuse to enroll younger widows. Okay, so why this one? Why does Paul say that she needs to be older? Look at verse 11 again. Talking about younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Now this admittedly is a more difficult passage to interpret. And I don't think this is condemning remarriage. When you look at this initially, you think, okay... So their passions draw them away from Christ. They desire to marry, and because of that, they receive condemnation. And I don't think that's what this is teaching. Here's why. Look further down to verse 14. Here, Paul tells them, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. So younger widows are actually instructed to marry. So I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think the issue is, A, they can still provide for themselves and remarry. And B, their faith isn't necessarily clear and might be slandered because of their actions. If these younger widows enroll... There's a potential occasion for the slandering of the faith where someone might say, well, why is the church providing for this woman? She's being enticed by these other men who don't go to church or in that culture who sacrifice to these other gods. Why is the church supporting that type of person? So the reason I think for this is that they might harm the reputation of Christ due to whatever desires in them that might pull them away from Christ. I think is what he's getting at here. It's not so much the remarrying. It's this desire that pulls her away from Jesus. That might exist, so the church should not do that. Reason number two that the scripture gives. They might become idlers, gossips, and busybodies. Look at verse 13. It says, after this first one, their desires pulling them away from Christ. Verse 13, besides that... They learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. And so he gives the instruction that they should just remarry instead. So by taking care of these widows, what's going to happen is they may stop trying to take care of themselves, which they're still physically able to do. The church would be enabling behaviors that are not good. Having their needs provided for will demotivate them to be productive. And instead, what will happen is they will waste their time with things that don't matter on the church's dime. That's the risk with this. I think that's what he's trying to avoid with this. And if you look back to verse 6, it describes certain widows who are self-indulgent and they're dead even while they live. 
to be fair, this verse doesn't mention age, but the idea is the same. We have to be intentional as a church with who we give aid to. And this is really hard for people sometimes. We had, when I was at Cyprus, um, Cecil Wynn was the executive pastor. Really sharp um, administrative and financial mind. And he was in charge of handing out benevolences. So when people came to the church in need, I need help paying an electric bill. I need help paying a water bill. I ran out of gas and I need something. He would basically talk with them and weed out the ones that had a genuine need versus the one that didn't have a genuine need. And at first I caught myself thinking, yeah, but they all have needs and we have the resources to meet all their needs. So why would we do that? And this one day he recalled a story to me and he was talking with someone and they had given whatever their story was. It was extremely convincing. He said, yeah, absolutely. And he gave them money or whatever. And they came back several months later with the exact same story, needing money again. And he said, so over the years I've learned there are some people that have a genuine need and some people that don't. And by providing the needs of those who don't have that genuine need, we are supporting them in their destructive habits. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here with widows. There's a situation where the church might be wasting its resources, not just financial, but just manpower resources. If you look at the very last verse here, verse 16, it says, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So by not being careful on how we take care of people, we're stretching ourselves thin and not supplying the real need where it counts. I think this goes beyond just widows. We can apply this to other areas in the church's ministry as well. So a true widow is advanced in age, not a young widow. And here's the last one. A true widow has, been, has borne the fruit of a believer. She's shown that she's a believer by her godliness. Look at verse 9. It says, having been the wife of one husband, this is this one man woman that we've talked about, and having a reputation for good works. Paul gives a list here including raising children. The implication there is that it's not her children. She's raising other children that don't have a mom. Taking care of Christians in need, taking care of the afflicted, etc. So why this qualification? Why does it need to be someone who's godly? That seems to imply that we have to earn the support that we're provided in the church. And that seems contrary to the gospel. The gospel says that we don't earn, we don't earn our salvation by good works. So why would we treat widows that way? And I think that it's because of a principle that pops up a lot in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 10.3 says, The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. Proverbs 12.2, A good man obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 12.21, No ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. The principle is that good is returned to the one who does good. Now, the book of Proverbs is not a book of promises. It's a book of Proverbs. It's a wise saying that is generally true, but not always true. And you'll know this maybe by experience. Some of you parents who raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and you think, okay, I want them to be a believer, and then they reject the faith. And then we turn to the book of Proverbs where we see raise a child in the way that they should go, and when they're older, they won't depart from it. And we say, well, what did we do wrong? Did we not raise them the right way? Why did they abandon the faith? It's because that's not a promise in Scripture. It's a proverb. 
It's generally true, but sometimes it doesn't come true. And it's the same thing with these other Proverbs. Sometimes the good person doesn't seem to obtain favor. Sometimes the righteous does go hungry. But the general principle is that good is returned to the one who does good. And in the case of widows, I think that God is returning to them what they have sown. If you look back in verse 4, that's the wording that it uses talking about children and their parents. If a widow has children and grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. So their parents took care of their needs. Therefore, that should be returned to them. And I think it's the same with widows who display this godliness. God is giving a return to them through the church. When there are no children, the church makes the return for the godliness that that widow has demonstrated. This keeps someone who is not a believer from coming in and taking advantage of the, of the church. To put it a little bit differently, they've demonstrated that they're truly members of the household of God. How do you know? Look at the way they live their life. They obviously have faith in Jesus. Or else they wouldn't be washing the feet of the saints and raising children that aren't theirs. Regular people don't do that. Believers do that. And since that person's a believer, she's family. And since she's family, we take care of her. That's the principle here. So the giant overarching theme of this whole passage is this. The church is a family and should act like a family. In our speech, in our conduct... In our taking care of each other, this goes beyond just widows, period. If you see a need in the church in someone, you seek to meet that need. You see someone in the church hurting, we go and mourn with them or laugh with them when they're excited. We, we treat each other like a family because that's what the church is. And it's really hard to develop this mentality when we don't spend time together as a church. We don't share our lives and needs with the church. And don't look out for others in the church. I've been able to, to visit with some shut-ins recently. And uh, one common theme that I'm hearing, and it's really interesting. You talk to some of these shut-ins. And one of the most common statements or questions that I get is this. So tell me what's been happening at the church. Is so-and-so still there? How's Sunday mornings going? They have no idea what's going on. A lot of them don't have the knowledge to use technology to be able to get on Facebook and watch us. They don't have the equipment necessary to be able to watch some of the services. But they want to know what's going on at their church. Why? Because this is their family. I think that we could do a great service. Call Michelle. She'll give you a list. Just look up and see who some of the shut-ins at our church are. Maybe you've never met them before. Guess what? I haven't either. I go up and I go, I'm like, hey. I'm your pastor. I've never met you. I, I would like to meet you. And they come in and fix you coffee. If you don't like coffee, you know, water or whatever. And we just sit and talk. And I always think, like, okay, I'll be in and out in 30 minutes. No, it's like an hour and a half, two hours later. I just want someone to talk to. We need to look for opportunities to serve our family and to treat each other like family as a church. Spend time together. So may we adopt this mentality, not just for widows, but especially for widows. And treat the church like we treat our families. Concern, care, and respect. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have treated us like your family when we weren't your family. 
We were sons of disobedience, following the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. But you, in your great mercy and in your great love for us, when we were lost and dead in our sin, you made us alive together with Christ. You have shown your grace to us. And now we ask that you would equip us through the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do the same for those who are members of our spiritual family. Give us insight to be able to see the needs in others that we can meet. Free up our schedule to be able to spend time with one another because that's what family does. Give us opportunities to meet needs. Help us to see the things that other people need so that we can meet them. God, would you send other people in our church to take care of our needs, to be on the lookout for the things that we need. Thank you for providing for us through each other, and thank you for providing for us through Jesus on the cross as he died in our place. Help us to look more like that every single day. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.